Hello, Pope Francis Generation listeners. We have an OG episode for you this week. This episode is from our very first season. It's about NFP and our consciences, and is titled, When NFP Isn't Good Enough. I'm releasing it again now because last week was NFP Awareness Week here in the U.S. Church. Every year, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, has a week dedicated to raising awareness about NFP, and this is our contribution to that discussion. A gentle content warning, this episode will include discussions about sexuality. Before we start the episode, I wanted to give a little bit of an introduction. The Church teaches a few things about family planning. First, the Church teaches that, quote, any action, which either before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse, is specifically intended to prevent procreation, uh, whether as an end or as a means, is intrinsically wrong. It's from Humani Vitae. Also from Humani Vitae, the Church teaches that couples are called to responsible parenthood. That is, couples ought to be open to life with prudence, discerning their health and their family situation. The Church also recognizes that when marital intimacy is cut off due to the need to avoid pregnancy, other aspects of the marriage can be put at risk. That's from Gabi Mitzbes. So the Church allows NFP, Natural Family Planning, as a pastoral solution to help couples navigate and follow these teachings. With NFP, couples track fertility signs to know when they are fertile and when they aren't, and change their behavior accordingly depending on if they're trying to get pregnant or to avoid pregnancy. For many people, NFP really works. They're able to be responsible parents, and even when they're avoiding pregnancy, they only need to abstain maybe a week to 10 days every month. But for many other people, whether it's because of health issues, irregular cycles, mental illness, past trauma, uncooperative spouses, financial difficulties, social problems, or a whole number of things, an unexpected pregnancy could be dangerous, and NFP can be extremely unreliable. For these couples, following the Church's teaching on contraception can be a tremendous cross. It's important that when we talk about NFP, that we're meeting people where they're at, and not just trying to sell NFP as a way of life. It's important that we understand this teaching. And, it, and while it's good to explain this teaching to others, we need to recognize that for many people, apologetics and catechism quotes are insufficient. Having the right answers isn't good enough, in part because many couples who struggle with NFP already know the right answers. We need to avoid conflating knowledge of the teaching with a person's ability to follow that teaching. So the catechism says that the kinds of circumstances I mentioned earlier can severely limit a person's freedom. Having knowledge of a truth does not mean someone has the capacity to live it out. It's crucial that we hold space for grace to work in people's lives and that we allow and that we allow grace to work in God's time to bring healing and freedom to people so that they can grow in their capacity to follow the moral law. It's important that we don't sell NFP as sunshine and roses and that we don't sell having children as nothing but grace because sometimes it's also a cross. And if we only present it as a grace, then we implicitly condemn and exclude people who experience something different. It is with that in mind that I wanted to re-release this episode and the accompanying article with it. In them, I try to hold this space for people who struggle with NFP. I also present the Church's teaching more holistically to show that the Church does not leave couples in impossible situations with no way forward. Jesus told us to pick up our crosses and follow him. But he also said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because he, as Pope Francis has taught, quote, took our sufferings upon himself and burdened himself with our sorrows to bring us through the cross to the joy of the resurrection. I hope you enjoyed this episode.
Why don't we talk about that today? You had penned a title for this, when NFP isn't good enough. First of all, let's just define this thing. What is NFP? Yeah, so I I was thinking about this topic because um, next week, so this is being recorded on a Thursday. So the week that this comes out for most people will be uh, NFP Awareness Week, um, which is sponsored by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. So I felt like um, with the topics we've been covering and the pillars of our show, yeah, let's let's jump into talking about NFP and Humanae Vitae. So, so NFP stands for Natural Family Planning, which is the uh, church's response to um, uh, the moral teaching of Humanae Vitae, uh, and and before then, Humanae Vitae is the um, most uh, definitive teaching in the modern church um, that uh, reaffirmed the church's moral prohibition on artificial contraception. And natural family planning was the church's, uh, one of the church's pastoral responses to that, um, mm-hmm. using tracking, uh, tracking biological fertility signs uh, to help a couple know when, um, when they are fertile and when they're not, when they're capable of getting pregnant or not. And um, yeah, and and using that to uh, displace children temporarily or indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Well, good. So let's get into all of this. And, uh, you know, you've got a, a story that you have shared. And of course, as someone in your line of work, it, it does come up. So hello, friends, and welcome to Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, their teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the kerygma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. So together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. Uh, Let's dive right in. And where do you want to start with this, Paul? Yeah, I think I I think first to start just a uh, a gentle disclaimer that that we're going to be talking pretty frankly about um, uh, natural family planning and um, contraception um, and marital intimacy. So uh, just just a, a general disclaimer to start. Um, yeah. So the the question of of why this topic. Oh man, there's so there's so many places to start. Uh, I know where I want to end, but where do I want yeah. to begin? Well, tell you what, one thing that might be helpful, perhaps for someone like myself, where uh, what's the what's the, the the context for this? Like you've you've thrown out a couple of words here, like humane vitae. Like what is that? The official church, you know, uh, suggestion getting behind this response, you know, with this situation. What's the context? Uh, why is this a thing for those who aren't as familiar with with what it is? Uh, why are we talking about it at all? Yes. So, um, he, uh, so Humanae Vitae was an encyclical written by Saint Pope Paul VI in the 1960s, following the or the 1970s. What year? 68 comes to mind. I think it was 68, um, following the Second Vatican Council. Uh, at the Second Vatican Council, the Church, the bishops wanted to address the moral question of contraception because a few decades previous um, 
in the in the early 1900s, Protestant denominations had started allowing um, married couples to use artificial contraception, and it was it was a big thing within the culture at that time. Mm-hmm. So it was a very relevant and pressing moral discussion. At the Second Vatican Council, the bishops decided to essentially table that, and um, they and send it to committee. They uh, they established a um, essentially an advisory committee made mm-hmm. up of uh, lay people, married couples, and theologians um, to really investigate this issue and to um, advise the Pope and uh, so that Pope Paul VI could issue a teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, they actually advised the Pope because the, the opinions of this committee were, were leaked to the press before this encyclical came out. And mm-hmm. it was made known that the majority of the committee um, favored the church uh, changing its moral teaching on contraception um, and allowing it in certain circumstances. Um, so that's what people thought the Pope was going to teach. And then um, Pope Paul the, Pope Paul the Sixth uh, didn't teach that. He reaff- um, he in many ways reaffirmed the uh, traditional teaching of the Church. And um, in his encyclical Humanae Vitae, um, where he said that, um, and I'll quote him: uh, "Any action which either before, at the moment of, or after sexual intercourse is specifically intended to prevent procreation." whether as an end or as a means, is intrinsically wrong. Um, that's like the crux of his document and um, caused a lot of turmoil within the church that is still present today, 50 years after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, like I talked about, one of the pastoral responses to that was, okay, so the church also doesn't teach that uh, married couples should just have as many kids as they possibly can. And it teaches that uh, married couples actually, uh, what they need to be responsible. The phrase the church uses is, is responsible parenting, mm-hmm. um, where they have to take into consideration the common good of the family and mm-hmm. the dignity of uh, the spouses and members of the family in their discernment of whether or not to have another child. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there was there was a recognition at the Second Vatican Council that um, prolonged lack of marital intimacy um, can harm a relationship, can harm a marriage. Mm-hmm. So trying to balance all of those things, um, this idea of, of natural family planning um, uh, came about, I mean, it was present before, but started being being promoted more after Humanae Vitae. And that's mm-hmm. where um, a, a couple would track, and there's lots of different methods and ways to track um, uh, a woman's biological fertility signs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to determine um, which parts of a woman's cycle she's fertile and which parts of the month she's not, of the cycle she's not fertile. And mm-hmm. then choose to have um, choose to have sex on one time or another, depending on whether or not you want to have a child. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, that's some of the history and context. That's an overview. 
Um, I think I'm going to keep just letting you drive here because uh, I guess the, the one question that comes to my mind then is, uh, well, first an observation, maybe then a question. One is what's what's beautiful about this this uh, format is that it's um, uh, engaging with the the rhythms of the human body in a space of reverence, without an intent to you know, to be controlling it either chemically, uh, medicinally, or through you know other practices. So it's not a forceful approach. Um, so in that in that sense, it just it makes sense why as as we in this past century, have continued to deepen and, and clarify and just become just amazingly meticulous with the genius of the human body and how it works. It just makes sense that there would come a point where um, uh, we would come to understand its rhythms uh, and then how the couple enters into that, again, with that sense of respect and reverence for how the human body works and not from a space of, uh, of controlling it. And of course, that's a whole different discussion why people would want that. We sort of covered that in the, the pro-life episode that we talked about. Um, but I guess and that's kind of what today's show is about is like when it's not enough. Like you had mentioned the one point, this is what seems to happen. It's kind of the culture that, that uh, uh, I've just known growing up with NFP was uh, it's, it's kind of a no holds barred then. And I think a lot of, and this is my opinion, a lot of women may may be concerned about this and a lot of guys seem to be ecstatic about this because it means that there's no, um, it's like, where are the guardrails? Like, where does it go wrong? Where is it insufficient? Or how does it end up, the, the culture that seems to grow up around it can then also become problematic. And that's where so I was interested to have this discussion with you because uh, it's a good thing. But then it's like, like you mentioned, the tweets, yeah, air quotes that came out before the actual document landed, and and you know, uh, people assumed uh, and and just went to town practicing whatever. Uh, it's how do I say this? It's like the the document says what it says, but then it's how that is read or read into. And I guess what I'm curious with this conversation is what does the document not say, and where is the the, the freedom of conscience and that pastoral response, which is, it's just your wheelhouse in this whole topic and, and everything really is like, what are those key things? Respect for the individual. How does that meet up with, you know, uh, what is said? And then again, what is not said because a lot of things are touted online and it's not actually preached. So yes, not sure exactly what the question was in there, but I think you know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah. Um, in my perspective, in my experience, so I am deep within the uh, uh, NFP subculture within the church. Um, my parents taught NFP; they were they taught other couples NFP um, mm -hmm. when I was a child, and my uh, wife and I took NFP classes when we were engaged, and we have used three different methods of of NFP throughout our marriage. Um, and we are expecting our fifth child soon. <laughs> um, I'm very much in, in, in this bubble. Uh, and I say bubble because, and this is just my perception on it. In surveys that have been done, somewhere around 90% of Catholics in the U.S. do not follow the teaching of Humanae Vitae and use some form of contraception. And... This, this, in my mind, 
created this this subculture, this NFP bubble that uh, in some ways has a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. Um, It promotes the church teaching. It actually um, pushes uh, in some way um, groups of people and people with influence to like actually develop um, better uh, methods of NFP. Mm-hmm. And it can be a place of encouragement and support for people using NFP. Mm-hmm. But uh, just as any subculture, any bubble, there's uh, toxic elements too. Um, there is a, there, I've definitely seen and been a part of an us versus them mentality of this, mm-hmm. like we are the faithful Catholics and there's this uh, them out there, those 90% of other Catholics, a, a disdain. Um, so this like, um, self-importance or self-righteousness uh, in this us versus them mentality. And there is a lot of controlling behavior mm-hmm. and almost out of fear of, there's almost this fear of individual consciences and that people's consciences are just waiting to justify people to sin, that um, uh, the role of the conscience is uh, very diminished. Mm-hmm. Um and almost looked upon, no, not almost, actually is looked upon with suspicion mm-hmm. well, quite a bit in this culture. So I've been in this environment my entire life. And so so my wife and I got married when we were still, we were um, Christmas break of our senior year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, we got married. And three months later, so this is this is before we graduated college, we, we found out uh, that we were pregnant with our oldest. And... Uh, so he was born, he was born two weeks before our first, excuse me, our first anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, we found out after he was born that, uh, my wife has severe postpartum anxiety and depression. Oh, I'm sorry. And after he was born, when he was an infant, mm-hmm. like she would have, she would have panic attacks because of, um, her postpartum uh, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And sh- shortly after uh, he was born, we were um, pregnant with our second because something else that we found out was, well, a lot of people, um, especially if uh, if they're nursing their baby, um, a lot of women, their fertility doesn't come back for a year or two after mm-hmm. they give birth. My wife's fertility comes back within a couple of months. So, um, so we had a second child and the postpartum depression and anxiety came back and we had a third child and the postpartum came back. And at that point we were, we were now on our, we'd switched NFP methods because the first one that we were using hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. And we were like, okay, we actually need to not get pregnant for a while for, uh, my wife's health. Mm-hmm. Um, and we pretty severely, stringently uh, practice NFP. I think we were texting pictures of our chart to our instructor every other week. And um, it was extremely stressful. So like, um, there's a lot of subjectivity within NFP, where you have to read like biological signs, and then mm-hmm. chart them. And then discern on on the chart um so there's a lot of subjectivity and that's uh 
made more difficult when the person um, uh, reading those biological signs also has anxiety mm -hmm. and is terrified of getting pregnant again because mm -hmm. of that anxiety. So this was a very difficult period and we had to play things extremely conservatively, which meant, um, which meant uh, a lot of abstinence and like I said, a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then nine months after our third was born, we found out that we were pregnant with our fourth. And mm -hmm. this was a total surprise. Like we took our chart to our instructor and we're like, how did this happen? And she looked at us and she said, I don't know. Uh, we eventually moved on to a third method of, <laughs> of NFP. Um, mm -hmm. uh, having it, having like when we found out our fourth was born and having it being a surprise and having it being us actively trying to not be pregnant for a while, uh, that took several months for the Lord to, to change our hearts. Um, yeah, there were a lot of dark thoughts and a lot of dark feelings. Um, mm -hmm. in the middle of that, but our fourth was born. Uh, we named him Francis and he's wonderful, but my wife's postpartum, uh, came back and came back just as bad or worse than it had before. Mm -hmm. Um, and we had a, now a third method of NFP, uh, um, which was better. Um, but still we had to play it even more conservatively. Cause we were like, we played it pretty darn conservatively the last time. And my wife's on like the brink. She like, we need to not have another child for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, so this meant all of that anxiety and all of the, and all of the abstinence and not sleeping cause we have an infant and also having four kids when the oldest hadn't turned five yet. Yeah. Um, and in this point, I was like, yeah, I was, and I couldn't put words to it, mm -hmm. but I was like, there's something insufficient here, right? There's something that isn't working here. And uh, I had like a personal blog at the time and I, and I wrote this short post that was titled something like, what do you do when NFP isn't good enough? Mm -hmm. And I didn't have answers. I just raised the question. Mm -hmm. And the, I was actually really surprised by the pushback I got on that. Um, that I would even presume that NFP had any problems at all in the first place. But I also received a lot of people who were like, yeah, what do we do when it's not good enough? Right. And because of my own experience, the Lord was like, the Lord was softening my heart to actually be able to hear people in a way that wasn't judgmental and wasn't defensive. And I started listening to people and I started hearing stories of couples who would go a year or more at a time after every child they had, mm -hmm. um, a year or more of abstinence at a time, because that was the only way they could guarantee that mm -hmm. they, uh, weren't going to get pregnant again immediately after having a child. Um, and I would hear stories of, of couples who would have to abstain months at a time or years at a time because they had medical conditions that, mm -hmm. um, 
if the wife got pregnant again, she, she like her dying was very much on the table, right? Mm -hmm. And the ways that this not only like was extremely challenging and put a lot of strain, I mean, that's an understatement, a lot of strain on their marriage and on their family, mm -hmm. but also the way that it impacted their relationship with God and their relationship with the church. I saw mm -hmm. people, I, I saw marriages fall apart. I mm -hmm. saw people leave the church. I saw people grow deeply, just deeply embittered. They stayed, but they're just, just yeah. uh, embittered. And this just reaffirmed, like, there is something that is insufficient here. Mm -hmm. And it was around this time that I started reading a lot of Pope Francis. And after I read Amoris Laetitia, I was like, there's something here mm -hmm. that's relevant. Mm -hmm. And then I started uh, uh, studying the charisma and studying theosis and all the things that we've talked about, conscience and all of that. And mm -hmm. I'm like, there's something here. So a couple of years ago, I wrote, I kind of put all of my experiences and all of my research into an article I wrote for homiletic and pastoral review, uh, which we'll probably link to in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And um, it brought together a genuine pastoral response for couples in these extremely difficult um, positions mm -hmm. when NFP and the culture around NFP uh, is insufficient for their right. circumstances. Yeah, the the um, very in a similar way, my wife and I have been uh, just navigating, trying to discern this. She's been sick for about ten years and very, very slowly getting better, and it's just not been practical to to have any more. She's just unable to to handle that. And so these same questions and the the, the frustration that I've had, and hence starting a show like this to to start to understand what have I misunderstood in my formation that's making this harder than it needs to be, you know, and feeling stuck between two immovable, um, well, rock in a hard place, rock of Peter, as it seems, you know, but yeah. then there's, it's, it's inaccurate to actually say that because there's like last episode, we talked about spiritual abuse, kind of the brandishing of hellfire as a means of keeping you on the straight and narrow without respecting where people are and on their journey. We can get into that in a little bit. So that's the one side, a sense of spiritual abuse and how things are interpreted and how people are demanded. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, the, the healthy, flourishing functioning of a, of, a, of a thriving human body and a loving couple that is meant to uh, communicate a bond and willingness for each other in how they live their lives and in physical embraces and all in intimacy and all of that. And to have one pitted against the other, I could understand, not could, can, why so many, like you just said, become disillusioned because it's, this is, it's like, you can't get out. You can't yeah. move. You yeah. can't make a choice and you're not free. Yeah. yeah. And once you're in that tension, it's like, I'm done. I'm out. You know, the I understand that. The audience I had in mind when I wrote this article and it, like was very specific. It's a couple who like actually believes and wants to follow the church's teaching because they believe it to be good and they believe it to be true. Mm -hmm. But who whose marriage they fear is is it deteriorating because of a lack of intimacy? Uh, mm -hmm. Who 
have um, health risks or financial risks or other things going on mm -hmm. that would that would make um, pregnancy ex an extreme hardship or life threatening, um, and who fear that um, that one mistake in the uh, uh, and in the in the churches uh, like one mistake in their sexual behavior is going to cut them off from God uh, or and cut them off from the church or um, threaten them with hell. Very um, Baltimore catechism. Yeah. And you said felt trapped. And I think the word I used was cornered. Like it's, ex it's the exact same thing, right? Mm -hmm. The sense of like, uh, I have no way out, which should be a sign that there's abuse of conscience going on exactly again yeah. if, if not by an individual but by a culture that would put someone in this position uh of feeling cornered like that mm -hmm. um you you want to walk through some catechesis let's do this okay so um my goal today on this episode is, is to walk through the main things of uh of, of that article um, mm -hmm. So we're going to start, we're going to step way back and then kind of approach this topic again, right? So I, I want to start with the moral law. Uh, and in the catechism, it says that God revealed the moral law in two stages. The first stage was um, the objective moral law as best expressed by the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can't, we can't really... Um, uh, downplay this in any way it is extremely important and essential for us to have the objective moral law um it's extremely important uh, for us to be able to judge other people's actions uh and our own actions according to what is going to bring us flourishing and happiness in life or what is going to bring us in our community suffering and death and we need the objective moral law. And I, I mean, as I mean, I think of like the modern world, how do we navigate weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons and bioethics and emerging technologies? How do we navigate that in any meaningful way without an objective moral law, right? Mm -hmm. you, you think of uh, like the US dropping uh, the, the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and the mm -hmm. circumstances of that Mm -hmm. uh, of the war that they were in and the future they were staring down, mm -hmm. you need to have an objective moral law to be able to navigate those things in any meaningful way. Right. So we can't downplay that. But then the catechism says the moral law, the objective moral law, the 10 commandments are insufficient. That's the word the catechism uses. They're not good enough. Mm. They're not good enough precisely because while they are a statement of what's true, they do not actually give someone the power to live it out. Mm -hmm. And I think all too often teachers and apologists in the church um, present the moral law in a way that would presume that being convinced of the objective truth, that something is wrong, is enough mm -hmm. for someone not to act that way. That simply knowing the commandments mm -hmm. is enough for someone to follow the commandments which isn't true. 
And because this isn't true, but it's being presented that way, it can lead it can lead believers to resent God, to resent the church, um, to resent the moral law, to feel mm -hmm. cornered. Um, and we do this especially with sexual morality. Mm -hmm. And I, I see this especially within this NFP subculture, where it's like, this is what the church says. So you should be able to follow it because this is the objective truth. Okay. So then the catechism says, the second stage of, the, of God's revelation of the moral law is Jesus Christ himself, mm -hmm. especially seen in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, and I think we've talked about this before. There's a scene, on, uh, a line or a scene in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, quoting the Ten Commandments, you've heard it said to you, anyone who kills their brother is liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who holds anger and resentment in their heart towards their brother is liable to the same thing. And then Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, anyone who lusts after uh, a woman in their heart commits adultery right? Mm -hmm. uh, he is not watering down the moral law. He's actually saying, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> because what's more difficult, not killing someone or not having anger and resentment towards someone, right? He's not mm -hmm. watering it down. And then he, and then he just says, just be perfect as God, your father is perfect. That's it. That's all we got to do. Now, if we were to hear th this teaching from Jesus, with the mindset of the first stage of revelation, the mindset of the Old Testament, we would walk away discouraged because we would recognize I am not able to get the anger out of my heart towards mm -hmm. people who've hurt me. I am not anger. I am not able to rid my heart of lust. I'm not able to be perfect as God is perfect. Mm -hmm. But the commands of Jesus are not just commands. They're also promises. Mm -hmm. Jesus is saying, that with me and in me and through me, I will free your heart from anger. I will free your heart from lust. I will make you perfect as God is perfect. And as we've talked about this, you know, this whole season, I mean, our whole show, this is what salvation is, is God making us divine. God making us into another Christ, right? The, Jesus Christ himself is the fulfillment of the moral law. And we, and we are able to follow the moral law by him making us like him, by him configuring us to him, by him making, and this is something Pope Francis has said, the Holy Spirit makes our mind like Christ's mind and our heart like Christ's heart so that we can see others and love others the way he does. And it's not just, so it's not just that God gave us the objective moral law. And it's not just that he gave us the strength through grace, through Christ to be able to live it out, but actually God gives us, he changes our desires so that we want to. The catechism says that the life of virtue, right? A life that's conformed to Christ makes living the moral law, uh, living out the moral law is easy and joyful is what the catechism says, right? The church teaches that grace actually changes our desires so that we want what Jesus wants. Mm -hmm. so this is an understanding of the moral law. Okay. It's important to note, though, if you have any questions, interrupt me. I can just keep going. I will, but fire okay. away. Okay. It's important to know that this transformation does not happen all at once. And the church is absolutely clear about this. It's not like mm -hmm. you're baptized and then, bam, you can be um, a Mother Teresa in the world, right? 
um, that ordinarily the church teaches, this process happens within time. So um, this is a quote from Pope Francis from his apostolic exhortation, uh, Gaudete et Exaltate. He says this, Grace, precisely because it builds on nature, does not make us superhuman all at once. Grace acts in history. Ordinarily, it takes hold of us and transforms us progressively. If we reject this historical and progressive reality, we can actually refuse and block grace, even as we extol it with our words. It's not like St. Peter met Christ, and then he was able to like do everything Christ said. It's not even like St. Peter um, saw the risen Lord and walked with him for 40 days and then could follow what Jesus said. Even after Pentecost, when he received the fullness of the Holy Spirit, St. Peter was still messing up and Paul had to correct him, right? I feel like a corollary here would be like watching uh, someone play basketball on YouTube, right? Michael Jordan shooting that perfect shot. 50 times expect- in a row. Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You watch it on, on repeat. And then you head out to the basketball court and try it yourself. And it's going to take you. You won't get it on the first try. It will take you a long time because there's the building up of your body, of the mind, of the choices and the moments. Um, you know, these these Ten Commandments, these lines from, like you're, you're pointing out from what you know, Christ is saying, these are like the, the hyper-distilled uh, thoughts. These are like the stars that must orient us. But then we have to work through living them out. And I think that's where, where you're going with this, is the, um, our capacity to understand them is, is one thing. Our capacity to, to honestly and faithfully, you know, or honestly and brokenly implement them as we're also trying to navigate living a livable life with whatever else is going on. One, God takes all of that into account. And it's it's not practical to assume, here's a checklist of 10 things, go and live a great life. It's like, yeah. well, I th- and that's what history is, is yeah. people wrestling. You know? there's, there's a hidden presumption amongst many people, and the Pope calls this, this neo-Pelagianism. And that's this idea that everyone, every Christian is always capable of following the moral law. That that is a reality that everyone can achieve, any Christian can achieve at any moment because they've received the grace of baptism. And they quote the New Testament from St. Paul that says, God's grace is sufficient. Okay. God's grace is sufficient. But the church also recognizes that God does not immediately heal everybody all at once. He doesn't. God's grace is ultimately sufficient. But God chooses. It's his choice to transform us, to heal us and transform us in a, in a process, progressively, within time and within history. This is the Lord's work. This is not our work. We must cooperate, but this is the Lord's work. But there's moments then in this time of, in, in this process, where we can understand the moral law and believe it to be true and good, but not yet be free enough not yet be healed and transformed enough to actually follow it. 
So this is where we get into the church's teaching, and we've talked about this before as well, on mortal sin. Mm -hmm. The church says, and this is a quote from uh, the catechism, imputability and responsibility for an action can be diminished or even nullified by ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, habit, inordinate attachments, and other psychological or social factors. Meaning, someone can know what's good and true and believe it to be good and true and want to do it because they believe it to be good and true, but not be able to, not have the freedom to, because of any one of these things that the church lists. And that's because this is someone who has been transformed enough to understand the moral law and to live it out maybe in a great way, mm -hmm. but who has not yet been transformed to to follow the moral law perfectly yet. Like they're in this process. I think a good metric for uh, getting a sense of how we're allowing people to be where they are on their, their journey. And we talked about this in a previous conversation on, on conscience. Um, I, I think a good metric might be to look at some of the saints, for example. And I think we they're elevated as saints for us because they model a space of compassion and clarity but but primarily that compassion and understanding for where somebody is uh in their capacity to understand and then integrate and then model you know for others or for themselves uh, but it's a good i think for me it's become a good metric to get a sense of where somebody else is on their journey when they've understood something and then they all too easily lambaste everybody else for not, as you've pointed out, that neo-Pelagianism. If you've understood it, you should be able to do it. Yeah. And it doesn't take into account, uh, well, as the catechism itself has pointed out, the uh, either ignorance, inadvertence, duress, fear, just habits, attachments, all of that is stuff we're working through constantly. Um, and like you say, that can nullify in as far as that person's relationship with God we may not agree with it, but it's not up to us. And they aren't, you know, somebody else wrestling with these kind of questions don't answer to us. And we may not like it, but it's not about us. And that's a good metric, I think, for how defensive are we getting about somebody else's choices? Yeah. Like, wait a second, it's not you. Do and be the best you can, obviously. Beam in your own eye, you know. And recognize they are in a different place maybe in a different capacity to understand because saying the same word does not mean the same thing to two people sitting in the same audience. You know, you get one speaker and they say something and you have a thousand people, it will be taken a thousand different ways. Yeah. And we constantly, and we, I mean, like I see this in the church all the time. I have seen like priests have challenged me on this. Catechists have challenged me on this. People like, I see this all of the time where we take the church has three criteria for mortal sin. The object is grave, and severely wrong. You have to have sufficient knowledge and you have to have sufficient freedom. Yeah. Okay. So there's three criteria for mortal sin. And what I see all the time is uh, conflating or collapsing, right? Where we say, if someone did something that was gravely wrong, therefore they've committed a mortal sin with no regard for uh, if they knew it was wrong or if they were free uh, when they did it. Or we collapse knowing and uh, 
sorry, we collapse freedom into knowing. And we say, well, if they knew that it was wrong and they did it anyway, then they must be guilty of it. And if that were true, then someone like, and we, and, and we've, we've, we've talked before about, uh, um, St. Mark where, um, where he was denied absolution and denied communion because he was addicted to opium because the priest didn't think that he wanted to be free of this addiction enough. Now, um, we recognize that he wasn't actually free and that he wasn't actually guilty of a mortal sin. Cause if he were grace would not have transformed him to such a point where he was able to die as a martyr. Um, so what I like, I believe there's so much confusion around this teaching and I hear this conflation all of the time. And I especially hear it when it comes to, um, the church's sexual teachings, right? I think there's so much, of a culture of defensiveness that we have to defend the objective evil of, of sexual immorality that we pres that we present every violation of the church's sexual teaching as a mortal sin, as someone, as an act that damns someone to hell, as an act that bars someone from communion, unless they go to confession as an act that separates someone from God. This can easily lead couples who are striving to follow the church's teaching, um, to dis disproportionately judge their relationship with God on their ability to keep the church's sexual rules. And they live in fear that of falling into hell, falling into mortal sin, just by making a mistake, mm -hmm. by doing something that they didn't freely choose. So like this culture around Humanae Vitae and around NFP has created this controlling of other people um, just by misrepresenting the church's teaching on mortal sin. Alrighty, Paul, let's now talk about <laughs> now that we've gone through the theory, we've gone through the context. Um, let's talk about the, the pastoral steps and let's talk about what this, this document or this, this, you know, this discussion does not say so yes. that we can make a, you know, a free response in with our own consciences. Yeah. So. I have in mind with this pastoral application, uh, the audience that I've already talked about, right? Couples who um, strive to follow the church's teaching, who desire to follow the church's teaching, but who find themselves cornered or stuck because of their circumstances. Or people who are pastoring or, or in some way a friend to or accompanying people in this situation. The first step uh, is to pray, um, ask the Holy Spirit to help us know God's love and goodness more, to know the charisma more, to know his desire for us, even in the midst of our weakness. Because this is the thing. I think we have, yeah, I'll get to that, but to know God's love and goodness more. And the second thing is to have this vulnerable prayer that we've talked about in several episodes, going before the Lord, honest with him about our desires and about our fears and about our frustrations and about how we feel stuck, honest with ourselves about those things and just bringing those things to the Lord and offering them to him and waiting for him to speak into them. 
next is to lean into the sacraments. Um, lean into your baptismal identity as a new Christ. Lean into the sacraments, uh, the healing sacraments of confession and the Eucharist. Um, and uh, our own marriage as well, right? Um, that <clears throat> within marriage, every act of love towards our spouse, towards our kids, mm -hmm. is God um, making us more like him, right? Okay. I think what's difficult in this is that because of that Catholic culture, um, that, many, uh, that, that many couples who are striving to follow this teaching have been formed by, um, there's, there's this belief that uh, every fault, every fall, every weakness in someone's sexual life cuts them off from God and the church and cuts them off from the sacraments, which can easily lead to a legalistic view of the sacrament of confession, which as is seen as like a legal thing, where like I have broke the rule and now I need to, to, um, uh, to have, have that be forgiven, you know, that, that ledger wiped clean in a legalistic way. However, and this is really important, our weakness, I'm not saying our free sin, which is different, our, our, our freely chosen sin, grave sin, mortal sin, cuts us off from God and church. But our weakness does not. Actually, our weakness is precisely why the church exists is to heal us from our weakness and transform us and make us like Christ. So this is where we hear Pope Francis teaching that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, mm -hmm. but medicine for those who are weak, he says, right? And Pope Francis also says that confession is not a dry cleaner, something that wipes our, you know, wipes our ledger clean in a legalistic way, but rather an encounter with Jesus who waits for us just as we are. I think of the story of the woman at the well Jesus sat there waiting for her, just as she is, not yeah. expecting her to be anything different than who she was, just to encounter her. Our weaknesses do not cut us off from God. They are instead the very thing that keep us running back to God to receive his healing and his grace and his power and his love. So in our weakness, we should not feel cut off from the church and from the sacraments. Mm -hmm. In our weakness, we should be running back towards them with open arms. Okay. So prayer, sacraments. And then the last one is to form and trust and follow one's conscience. And for more about this, go and listen to our, our, our episode about conscience. But briefly, it means like knowing that we must form our conscience. We form our conscience through that vulnerable prayer, through knowledge of scripture, knowledge of the church's teaching, um, counsel from others. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But also knowing, and this comes from Amoris Laetitia. So this is a quote from the Pope. He says this, conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. In other words, he's saying, our conscience can recognize whether or not our behavior violates the commandments. But it can do more than that, the Pope says. He goes on, it can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what, for now, is the most generous response which can be given to God, and come to see with a certain moral security 
that this is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits, well, not yet fully the objective ideal. What the Pope is saying here is that through our conscience, God can show us our circumstances and our weaknesses. And in light of those things, the next step he wants us to take, that we are able to take, even with the limitations of our weaknesses, and even if that step does not fully meet the demands of the moral law. He is pleased. It is his will for us to take that step. It's not his will that we're not fully living the objective moral law. Mm-hmm. It's his will that we're choosing to progressively follow him in the way that he's asking us to. Mm-hmm. And it's too important to remember here that an objective violation of the moral law doesn't always, it isn't always a mortal sin. It doesn't always cut us off from God precisely because of weaknesses, right? Mm -hmm. Our ignorance, inadvertence, duress, habit, fear, and other psychological and social factors. But it's our conscience that can tell us uh, our weaknesses in the midst of those circumstances. Yeah. And then this reminds me of, of, um, uh, I don't know where this originated. It's probably every culture has stories like this, but of... uh, story about contemplative prayer and a young monk runs to the father abbot and says, I tried to, you know, pray my rosary, whatever, pray, sit in, in meditative prayer. And I might just get wandering like a thousand times. I'm, I'm, I failed a thousand times. And, and the, the father abbot says something like next time, think of it as a thousand fresh opportunities to turn your attention back to what you're trying to focus on back to God. And that should be the way that we think about or, or uh, approach moments of weakness, moments of failure, and so on, is not as, dang, nab it all, I failed again, I am such a sinner, I'm, it's, you know, even Christ doesn't speak to us like that. Instead, every opportunity is, well, that happened, let's work on not doing that again, let's get back to, you know, just try again. Um, and for, for in this sort of space, there's there's often a lot of scrupulosity. And I fear that, uh, unfortunately, those who uh, are scrupulous then tend to also speak, can speak loudly. Or we've had teachings passed down by people who observed this with uh, an unfortunate scrupulosity. And that creates, again, that sense of fear around how to observe these things. And and um, for those who do struggle with this, which was completely me for, for years and my wife also for ages. And so we both ended up, uh, one of the things that kind of helped us get out of that was recognizing that in each other and then talking about that and being learning to be kind and to be patient with ourselves and recognizing that um, the, the, the presence of a weakness uh, or th- you know, the, the fear of, of a weakness uh, is not itself, you know, and like you just pointed out with conscience, if you're not absolutely sure that what you did was definitively a wrong thing, then it probably wasn't. Because if it was, you would know, and you, your scrupulosity wouldn't just be like spider tingling. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's scrupulosity and I think it's consciences that have been damaged or malformed by, um, Traumatic situations and bad yeah. teaching. Yeah. Yep. Now, to be clear here, mm-hmm. um, the like the use of contraception 
is um, objectively wrong. And the church teaches that because um, it's harmful. It's not something the church just makes up. Everything the church says is wrong. It says it's wrong because it's harmful to people. Um, and that this does not diminish the objective evilness, whatever that means, mm-hmm. of contraception. But our weaknesses do diminish our subjective freedom and therefore our subjective culpability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even then the church recognizes there's there's a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which, so, which teaches on behalf of the Pope, that came out after Humanae Vitae, that said, yeah, the catechism's teaching on, you know, fear and ignorance and all these factors reducing culpability, this also applies to contraception. It applies to everything. Like the church reaffirmed that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to, this, this teaching does not diminish the objective moral teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a, what the, what the, John Paul II and Pope Francis have called a gradual, a gradualness of law, mm-hmm. which would say that the law is, uh, you know, this is less immoral for some people because of their weakness and more immoral for others who don't have that weakness. That's not what the church is saying, but rather it's a law of gradualism. So it's not a gradualism of law, but a law of gradualism, mm-hmm. which recognizes that someone's freedom to follow the moral law mm-hmm. increases within time and is progressive and happens mm-hmm. gradually. And the Lord meets us precisely where we're at and moves us forward. And that's if something the, that- I was just gonna say, if the inverse was true, then clerics and academics would be paragons of virtue. And, and I'm sure some of them think they are, and they're all very, very human yeah. like the rest of us. So just on the face of it, it's not true. Just simply knowing this stuff yep. does not well, it does not save you. Isn't that the line? The law will not save you. Yeah. Yeah. So not, not at all to compare contraception to the use of atomic <laughs> right. weapons. I'm not doing that. But you look at the circumstances at the end of World War II and the people mm-hmm. who made the decision to drop the atomic bombs. Dropping an atomic bomb on a population, on a civilian population, is gravely, gravely evil. Maybe I don't know if there's anything more evil than that, right? Um. Now, the circumstances that the U.S. was in was horrible. They just, they're still going through a world war, and they're looking at uh, Japanese uh, military and regime and population that are willing to fight to the last person. And millions and millions of people could die if this war drags out for any length of time. Okay. So they do an ends justify the means calculus and be like, we can end this war now by killing all these people in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but it's going to force the Japanese hand. We're going to end the war and we're going to save millions of future lives, right? The church rejects that type of, that type of ends justify the means calculus. Mm -hmm. And it's going to say that decision was wrong. It was objectively wrong to drop those bombs um, and look at the harm that it, that it did. But at the same time, there's a recognition, at least at least I would recognize, I would not want to be the leaders who made that choice. And I could say that um, I'm not going to assume that they did so with full freedom. I imagine they did so because they believed their hands were tied and they had no other Felt option. like the only possible uh, yeah. option. 
or it was presented that way or yeah you know. so like going back to then uh, nfp and contraception the key thing here with with this following of conscience um and this and this recognition of weakness and culpability is that this this discernment is dynamic it must continue to be happening this formation of conscience must always be happening we must always be open uh the pope francis says to new stages of growth and new decisions which can enable the the ideal the, the commandments to be more fully realized all the time because the the ideal the commandments are not something that are inachievable mm -hmm. they may be inachievable at a particular moment for a particular person but they're not just ideals that exist in the abstract right okay this is not an excuse to sin not at all I mean, the presumption is that these are couples who know that no one believe that the church's teaching is good and true in the first place, right? This isn't an excuse to say. Um, and it must be a movement that's always dynamic, like I said, but always progressing towards a fuller, like more freedom and a fuller embracing of the moral law. If it becomes stagnant or comfortable, um then uh then th yeah then we're talking about a different thing right mm -hmm. um i feel like there's more that i was going to say but th that's what i have for now thoughts well, questions let's let's just recap kind of what's been covered because we've covered a bunch and um uh, i get the sense that one of the in the intents for this conversation was to uh, uh, clarify how a lot of us uh, approach this topic and as much as we wrestle with it to then impute um, our conclusions on others in ways that the church herself does not. Now it's probably beyond the scope of this discussion to then actually, you know, to try to answer or resolve or, you know, that's not maybe our place, but I think it is, is incredibly important is to be aware, and that's what I think you've been bringing to, to us here, is to be aware and to take care of the toxicity that can surround uh, the, the repression of conscience, the, the fear of allowing people to be wrestling and working through their own consciences. And, and uh, it's not up to us to assume they're not doing a good job of their own <laughs> lives yeah. or whatever. It's, it's just, that's just not up to us. And so back over to you, if you were to recap what we've covered. Yeah, it's, um, we don't need to be defensive. Respecting people's consciences isn't a, um, isn't a wishy-washy Catholicism. And it's not a, well, you're just giving people an excuse to sin. Um, it's actually respecting people's freedom the way that God respects our freedom. Mm -hmm. And it's not, uh, because the opposite of that is to impose and control, um, which ultimately, as the Pope says, makes for misery for everybody, for the whole community. Um, so there has to be that this recognition of uh, the church's teaching is objective teaching, and we believe it to be good and true because we're Catholics. Um, and our heart you know, and our mind may be more or less convinced of that, but we're Catholics and we believe the church's teaching is good and true. Okay. 
but that the objective teaching of humani vitae may be true that fact does not mean that everybody who's catholic is now able to follow that teaching mm -hmm. that that may be something that in some circumstances needs to be worked out mm -hmm. in time um with vulnerability and honesty and sincerity and humility before the lord um and this defensiveness that we may have about other people's behavior or this fear of that conscience somehow gives other people license i think it's something that if we see that within ourselves we need to bring that to the lord and ask why those things are are present why are we trying to possess this uh, possess other people's behavior in this way. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we able to love them freely? Um, and I think it's just being, giving couples in difficult situations like this, um, a lot of space and, and, and a lot of grace and a lot of sensitivity and not judgmentalism and not throwing apologetics at them as if knowing the teaching better is going to make this any easier mm -hmm. um but helping them trust in the lord's goodness and mercy and then and then trust in their conscience more so it's a it's an invitation to well among our listeners anyway to both sides if you're on if you're on the one side and maybe you know more and you've been this stuff is just feels more obvious and so on to you then like you said, to offer that space of kindness, of understanding, of compassion, of walking with them. I think we it's so easy to just to downplay that. I think that if if the immediate reaction is to downplay that, well, you're probably not going to enjoy this show too much. Um, but it is an art form that every every human has to learn. And then on the other side, uh, for those who this is not obvious to, it's just be patient with yourself. The next step might be to learn the next step might be to to educate, form your conscience, but also be uh, aware and weary of the toxicity. It is there. And those with the biggest, it's it's like those with the, um, what's, what's the, how does that phrase go? I can't remember, but it's like, I'm always afraid of people who rivet on a single idea and then beat that drum to hell. Because that shows an incapacity to understand how a human life expresses and dilutes and embodies a, a journey. Uh, and that's why we, I think it, we end up calling that radicalism, fundamentalism, or online, you know, we might just call that toxic human behavior, an inability to practice that empathy uh, of seeing another human person. And that's so. I think that's a great place to wrap, you know, and, and I would imagine people are still going to have questions um, mm -hmm. because it is a big discussion and we didn't really provide a lot of answers, but what we did was I hope try to clear the air around some of the toxicity and allowing people that, you know, we are friends with or people we know of or people who just aren't, they can't see it or they can't get it or they don't want to yet. You know, all of those are totally different spaces, different places in that journey. Thank you for listening to this OG episode of Pope Francis Generation. If you like this conversation, please hit the like button or leave a review. That helps more people discover this podcast. You can visit us anytime or send me a message at PopeFrancisGeneration.com. 
And if you like this podcast and want to go deeper with the topics we discuss, check out Father's Heart Academy. There we're building a community for folks looking for more compelling answers to their questions about Catholic teaching, offering workshops and resources to help be, help us share a more beautiful gospel. Join us at fathersheartacademy.com. Also come join us in, in Smart Catholics, the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations that are unafraid of doubts and questions. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. Join us at smartcatholics.com. Until next time, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless.